Yeah, gas is higher than ever before, but that's not stopping people from going on vacation or at least wanting to. Like never before. But you want road trip goals? Try 44 states, more than 20 national parks, more than 27,000 miles, all in the past year. Hi, from Michigan. From Michigan. All right, we're in Santa Cruz right now. Greetings from... Kentucky. We're in Kentucky and we're uh, glamping tonight. You get to glamp in this beautiful tent next to a castle. <laughs> and there's the horses over here. That's the Bledsoe family. And nearly a year ago, they got into an SUV and began to drive. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Thursday, March 10th, 2022. Today, we take you on an epic road trip across the United States with a family that's collecting stories instead of schlocky souvenirs. So in every state we go to, we want to learn a little bit more about what that state is known for. In Maine, it's lobsters. Greetings from Portland, Maine. Our kids got their hands dirty today, learning about something that is just so quintessentially Maine, and that is the lobster industry. It is fascinating. In Vermont, it's maple syrup. What is this? Maple syrup. Maple syrup. Vermont makes about half of the country's maple syrup. Business is booming right now, and nobody knows that better than the family we talk to because they've been doing it for more than a century. If you're in Florida, you want to see a manatee. Greetings from Blue Spring State Park in Florida. This is the winter home for hundreds of manatees. And it's an animal that's in crisis right now, in case you haven't heard. What's going on with the manatees? They don't have enough food. Yeah, they don't have enough food. So we met some people today who are trying to be part of the solution. Greg Bledsoe is a former morning news anchor for NBC7 in San Diego. And that sound you heard is from his ongoing cross-country road trip with his family of four. Greg, welcome to The Times. Gustavo, thank you. Glad to be here. So where are you right now? We are in Texas, somewhere in the middle of Texas, actually about an hour outside of Austin, to be more exact. Okay, so you left San Diego almost a year ago. You gave up your job, gave away all your furniture, hit the road with your wife and kids with that goal of seeing all 50 states. How much of a role did the pandemic play in your decision to leave the life that the two of you had built behind? Funny enough, none. But we had planned to do this. We've wanted to do this for 10 years. We had planned to do it before the pandemic. In fact, I'd given my notice at NBC and then the pandemic hit. So we sort of put everything off for a little while. They let me stick around for a little while longer. And then when we felt it was safe enough, that's when we ventured out. The timing has ended up to be perfect because, you know, we feel safe. It's easier to be outside in this lifestyle. But yeah, we had planned to do this even before everything happened. So who are you trying to be more like, Charles Corral or uh, John Steinbeck and Travels with Charlie? Oh my gosh, a combination and then a little bit of Steve Hartman mixed in there. Yeah, gosh, I mean, Charles Corral was uh, sort of the trailblazer for this sort of thing, at least as far as TV goes. So I'm, I'm happy for any comparison. So are you folks doing this from a car or are you part of that whole van life movement? We're in a big SUV. We did a test run in a van to see how it would work. And it was great. Those are great. We wanted to get in and out of cities as well. We wanted to cover everything this year. And it's just easier in an SUV to get in and out of cities. You know, we've been to New York, Boston, D.C., you know, you name it, and Chicago. So it's easier to get those vehicles in and out of parking spaces. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mentioned van life. So it's been this movement that's blown up over the past five years where people put their entire lives on the road, usually in a van, hence the hashtag van life, and ideally in a VW bus. And it's really captured this zeitgeist of freedom and wanderlust that a lot of people are feeling. But more people dream about van life than actually do it. So you mentioned that you had been planning this for a decade, but it's one thing to have these dreams. It's quite something else to just go for it. To pull the trigger, right, yeah. And I'm sure that not everybody thinks this was the wisest decision, be it financially or career-wise. But for us, like I said, it, it was on our heart. Maybe it's just our personality type that when something pulls at you long enough, eventually you gotta give in, or like I said, you're always gonna wonder. And so I think for us, that's what it was. It wasn't an easy decision and we left a lot behind. We have two little kids that we're doing this with, so there are challenges every single day, multiple times a day. But again, we wanted to do it and we didn't want to wonder. You can't live life with regrets. That's what I always say. First question I really have for all of this, how are you funding all this? We have definitely dug into our savings. Uh, that's a great question and, and everybody wonders that. But I've also been fortunate enough to be able to work on the road as well. I've done a little bit of freelance work. I'm a journalist, I'm a photographer, and I'm doing some work for NBCLX. So I'm lucky enough to have somewhat of a job while we're out here as well. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, you're a roving correspondent. Who doesn't want a roving correspondent getting all these stories? So you've been at this for almost a year. How did week one, do you, rem do you remember week one anymore? Vividly. Yeah. It, <laughs> and it's funny. Sometimes it seems like it was a week ago. Sometimes it seems like it was a decade ago. But week one, in fact, night one, we left San Diego late. We got to our first camp spot in the dark. We're setting up in the dark. Our tent breaks. The next night, massive windstorm. Everything's blowing all over the place. And so at that point, we're two days into this thing. Our car is just full of stuff. We're all over the place. We didn't pack as efficiently as we should have. Things are breaking and it has only gotten better from there. We're on our fourth tent now, by the way. We've had a few other weather events that have taken some of the other ones out, but we've gotten better as it goes. I do think back to that first week and uh, I'm sort of proud of where we are now because we've figured out a lot along the way. And for anyone else who does this in the future, I have all sorts of advice. More road trip stories with Greg after the break. Welcome back. So, Greg, one of your goals of this road trip is to find stories because you're a journalist, so duh. And the stories that you're documenting, you're putting on your YouTube channel, your Instagram account, big stories, small stories. And one of them dealt with the pride of Santa Cruz, California, banana slugs. You know where we are? Remember? The Mendocino Woodlands. The Mendocino Woodlands. We're staying in these cabins that were built back in the 1930s. They're really cool. But the coolest thing we found was where? On the ground. On the ground. But don't eat it. <laughs> Talk to me about banana slugs. Okay, if you live in Northern California or anywhere near the Redwoods, you've seen these things and it's no big deal. If you're not from there, they're the strangest looking creature and we didn't know anything about them. And we saw these things crawling around and we were like, oh my gosh, what is that? And I broke out my phone because I didn't have my camera gear with and started taking videos and pictures of these fascinating things. And then we found somebody there who knew a lot about them and they talked to us and they taught us and they're just the most fascinating creatures. They have thousands of teeth. They're really, really sticky if you touch them. If you kiss them, apparently it can numb your lips a little bit. 
I've never kissed a slug. <laughs> so they get a, a little bit under 10 inches long. We'll find them on our windows. We'll find them all over the place. Usually people are super curious. Their first reaction is sort of nervous excitement and the question of what is that big yellow slug-like thing. They ab absolutely eat just about anything that is left out on the ground. Actually, as far as human foods, they love beer. And if you leave a bottle of beer out for 10 minutes, a slug will be on that bottle. They will not harm you at all. They're just weird looking things. But all these things that we didn't know, and that was sort of the point of this trip, right, is to go out and learn about what we found and then pass it along. So that was one of my favorite examples. We're just walking along. There was no planning involved in the story. We saw something interesting on the ground. We learned about it, and then we passed that story along to anybody else who, who might care. You mentioned your children earlier. You and your wife have a three-year-old and a first grader. So how does that work out on the road? Yeah, our seven-year-old is in first grade this year, and so my wife is now his first grade teacher. And not that every family or school would have the ability to do it this way, but it is just so incredible to be learning hands-on. You know, everything we learn about, he's seeing in person. The history, the, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, the Civil Rights Movement, we're not just reading about these things in books. He's going to the sites, the places where these things happened, the museums across this country. And so I wish I had done first grade this way. It's been incredible for him. He's thriving in it. We read a ton of books. We don't do a lot of screen time on, on this trip. We, we read a lot and we see a lot. And that's been his school for the year. And we're all learning together. And it's just worked out wonderfully for him and for us. A lot of lessons on the road. And it's not all banana slugs, in other words, because one of the stories that you got, actually, you ended up talking to the photographer who followed George Floyd's family for the past two years. How did that come about? I found him on Instagram. I saw his images and said, wow, this guy shoots some really powerful stuff. We're going to be in Minneapolis. He's been there and a witness to so much over the last year or two. I'm going to hit him up and see if he'll talk to me. And sure enough, he did. And he shared his images and his stories. My name is Osamo Abbasi. I'm a photographer and videographer here in the Twin Cities. I was there for the family, documenting the humanity around George. Uh, I think I took over 30,000 photos. He was the only photographer in the room for some of those moments where the family was just going through this unimaginable thing. Um, so yeah, I was in the room with the family for the verdict. I was the only camera in the room. Reverend Al Sharpton was there as well as Reverend Jesse Jackson. We were waiting in anticipation. And guilty verdict came. For me, it was like, I started crying right away, and I was like, oh, I got <laughs> back to work. And then, because I had to document everything that was happening in that room. So, yeah, there's a range to the stories, obviously, from banana slugs to something like that. And the only criteria for us this year was if there's something interesting that we can learn about, that's all that matters. And so we've talked to some fascinating people who have interesting jobs or who've seen something really interesting, and we just like to talk to them and then pass it along to other people. And that was certainly one of them that I will remember forever. His family loved him. That was their brother. That was their father. That was their cousin. And I want to make sure people understand George was a human. What do you think has really changed over the last couple years? 
really there's more unity within the black community and then also just more allyship as well from other communities. Because of this, you think it brought everybody together? It did, yeah. What do you hope the family gets out of the work you've done? I want them to get whatever it is they want from those images, but for the most part, I want them to get some sleep. More right after the break. We're back. We're with Greg Bledsoe, a former morning news anchor in San Diego, California. He's been on a year-long road trip with his family. And here's a clip that Greg took about the national pastime, which happens to be on break right now, baseball. All right, it's baseball playoff time. And, and no matter who wins the World Series this year, they should probably say at least a little thank you to this place here in northern Pennsylvania. Okay, Greg, what does northern Pennsylvania have to do with baseball? There are a lot of trees. <laughs> if you've ever driven through Pennsylvania... There are so many trees. Those trees, some of them, a very select few, end up becoming baseball bats that we watch on TV and in the World Series. Uh, Louisville Slugger, one of the largest makers of wooden baseball bats, sources a lot of their trees from southern Pennsylvania and northern New York. And we talked to the guy who actually sees those logs come into the mill and selects which ones are gonna be Major League Baseball bats. I make sure I find the right wood, Basically, I've been in this business since I could walk. My father was in it, and then I got in it. He looks at the grain of the wood. They, they know what they're doing. He's been doing it for a long time. His dad did the job before him. And so that's what it has to do with baseball. Anytime you do watch a baseball game, you go to a baseball game, I touched that before anybody else did. You know, I, I chose that log. So we're hearing all these cool clips, poignant clips. You talked a little bit about the hard, but I mean, over the course of a year, what have been some of those hard moments that your family has faced? I think the biggest challenge is we're uncomfortable sometimes. Our kids have been cold at night. We camp a lot. It's tough figuring out a way to eat three meals a day that are healthy and affordable and not being out at restaurants. And so a lot of the challenges are just logistical you know, raising a family on four wheels. How do you eat? How do you eat healthy? How do you stay warm? How do you pack everything you need for an entire year into one car? Because we're driving through seasons, right? So yeah, it, there are logistical challenges. Our kids will go to bed sometimes at midnight, sometimes at 8 p.m. Meals are all over the place. It would drive a structured family nuts to see what we've been doing out here. But it's out of necessity because no day is exactly the same. No place is exactly the same. And so we gave up routines, essentially. We eat at different times of the day. We do school when we have time to do school. Uh, a lot of the times school is where we are and what we're learning about. Other times it's reading and worksheets. There are no routines in this life. And I'm sure some people have been able to do it and are a little more structured. This just works for us. Your family has been doing this road trip after a very contentious year, uh, you know, in the United States first and now globally, there's war raging Ukraine, pandemic is still causing problems, gas prices skyrocketing. How do you feel about doing all of this, basically enjoying all of this and posting all these really cool stories uh, from your family's cross country trip at this point in our nation's history? Yeah, we're not tone deaf that the world is a very heavy place right now. And so I don't want anyone to think that we're out partying and traveling and unaware of what is happening in the rest of the world, be it Ukraine, be it the 
economic situation in this country, COVID. If anything, I lived in that world for so long as a journalist. And I understand that not only are those things incredibly important that we understand, but it's also nice for two minutes a day to not think about that and to take a little break and to see something beautiful. And I hope that that's what we give people is they learn a little something and feel good after watching one of our stories. Nobody should feel guilty about taking a breath and a long exhale every day, especially right now. You know, so if anything, I hope that we're therapeutic to people. On that note, one of the clips that I really enjoyed was your family went to a retirement home for horses. Patch is famous. He ran in the Kentucky Derby, only has one eye. How did you find out about this and why did you want to stop there? Okay. Those are not just horses. Those are racehorses and some really famous racehorses, right? This is a place for old racehorses when they're done with their racing and breeding careers uh, to come and retire and finally uh, enjoy life. They deserve this. Yeah, and they've earned it. When you think about it, they've worked hard their whole lives. We try to learn about whatever every state we visit is known for. And so we saw a lot of horses and we visited some horse farms and we took our kids horseback riding. And we found this place where they've basically saved a lot of retired racehorses from what may have been an otherwise not so happy ending. Some of them ended up on slaughter trucks going off to, to the slaughterhouse. And I said, well, I'm gonna put them in my yard and hope that people come visit. Uh, and I knew this was a good idea. Just, you just walk around here and I can tell you stories about every one of these horses. Silver Charm, every single one of them. We got company. Our most famous horse right now is, is Silver Charm. He's a wonderful horse, he's 27 years old. In 1997, he won the Derby and the Preakness, almost won the Triple Crown. Yeah, when he retired, he earned almost $7 million. And he retired with more earnings than any horse in the history of horse racing. He's also the sweetest and the nicest and the smartest. Hey, Pops. These horses get to come and live out their days, and this place has been doing it for about 20 years. They're not the only ones doing it, but what a magical place. We got to go tour around, meet some of these horses, and learn about not only the horse racing industry in Kentucky, but also what's being done to treat these animals humanely after it's all over. So yeah, we just, we dive into whatever the, the issue of the state is or what that state is known for, the flavor of the state, you could say, and try and learn as much as we can. And that was Kentucky. It's interesting how you're finding ways to teach your children about ethics or about the environment, climate change, racial justice, these big weighty topics. I know you and your family also met someone who turns trash into art as a political statement. Yeah, one of my favorites and one of our first. There's an artist in the Santa Cruz area named Ethan Estes, and he's also a marine scientist, and he's sort of found a way to combine those two passions by taking trash and discarded fishing gear and things that are pulled out of the ocean. There's about essentially a garbage truck's worth of plastic dump in the ocean every minute. I stockpile tons of old fishing gear that I uh, use to make artwork. It's abundant. A lot of the plastic that is in the ocean comes from commercial fisheries. They lose gear, they illegally dump it at sea, and it's, it's a pretty big problem because it's also the most dangerous form of plastic pollution. And he turns them into beautiful sculptures and beautiful art, not only because they look nice hanging in people's homes, but some of the sculptures actually 
tour around to different events and they're a really good visual representation of a very big problem that we have right now, which is trash in our ocean. And so he just does amazing work. One of them, somebody had pulled about 20,000 golf balls Ugh. out of the ocean off Pebble Beach to study what's happening to those golf balls as they break down and the effects that they may have on marine life in the area. Well, when they were done with the project, they approached Ethan and said, do you want these golf balls? And he said, yeah, I'll take them. And he built a life-size wave out of them that now people can come and see. And like I said, it really helps that lesson and that issue, that problem hit home when you're seeing it like that. So he's been one of my favorite stories and I just thought it was so fascinating the work he's doing and how he's been able to tie in both of his passions and backgrounds. So I got to a point in my career where people just started emailing me like, hey, I've got all a bunch of trash, do you want it? And I'm like, what do you got? An interesting position to be in. People start sending me their trash via FedEx. <laughs> in this trip, how have you seen yourself change? Like, you know, from the superficial, like shaving less or not cutting your hair as much to more fundamental existential things? I think, I hope that we have learned together that we don't need everything that we've surrounded ourselves with in a more comfortable lifestyle. We only need what fits in our car, at least for us and for this year. So I hope that when we go back, we're less reliant on a lot of the things that we used to take for granted. That we appreciate warm water and we appreciate a warm bed at night. I don't want to be over dramatic. We've been, we've been comfortable along the way. But when you live with less, I think you appreciate what you have even more so. So I think that's how we've changed. Greg, thank you so much for your conversation and keep safe on the roads. My pleasure, Gustavo. Thank you. That's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, energy prices, Ukraine, Russia. Yeah, it's getting rough out there. Kinsey Moreland was a half on this episode, and our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Brasalian, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton, and our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to put you podcasts. And hey, we still want your feedback. The bosses want it. So come on, call or text 619-800-0717. 619-800-0717. It can't be all my sisters and cousins saying how amazing this show is. I want to hear from people who don't know who I am, who only know me from this podcast, frankly. So tell us who you are, what you think about our show, the good and the bad. We want it all. Gracias in advance. And of course, me, I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this model. Gracias. Gracias.